Michael Mansour was a U.S. Navy SEAL, a gunner by training. He was killed in Ramadi two years ago. And I'll read from his official U.S. military summary of action. It reads, an enemy fighter hurled a hand grenade onto the roof. The grenade hit Mansour in the chest and bounced onto the ground. He immediately leapt to his feet and yelled grenade to alert his teammates of impending danger, but they could not escape harm. Without hesitation and showing no regard for his own life, he threw himself onto the grenade, smothering it to protect his teammates. Mansoor's actions could not have been more selfless or clearly intentional. And that's why it was so emotional today at the White House. Mr. and Mrs. Mansoor, America owes you a debt that can never be repaid. This nation will always cherish the memory of your son. We will not let his life go in vain. This nation will always honor the sacrifice he made. May God comfort you. May God bless America. Come on up. Just as no parent should ever have to bury a child, it hurts deeply when a nation buries its young heroes, and that showed on the president's face today. Michael Mansoor was from Garden Grove, California. He was a devout Catholic who loved Johnny Cash and his beloved Corvette. He was a star athlete in school from a military family. Three quarters of the missions he went on in Iraq were under heavy fire. His Medal of Honor is the third to be awarded so far in the Iraq War, a conflict that has seen countless acts of heroism. Michael Mansoor would have turned 27 this past Saturday. episode for you guys. But before we get into that, I want to thank my sponsors over at BioWave. BioWave is a non-opioid way to block chronic or acute pain at the push of a button. It's VA recognized, VA prescribed, FDA cleared, and made in America. BioWave is used by over 30 VAs and even professional sports teams. If you are a veteran or active military that needs help managing pain, visit BioWave.com and learn how to get treatment at no cost. You can visit BioWave.com slash customers biowave.com slash testimonials or biowave.com slash VA. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. We got some really good guests uh, on with us. We have Boyd Renner back on the podcast with us. Um, Boyd served for a long time in the United States Navy as a SEAL. And um, we also have Bob Snee on with us. Uh, Bob served over in the British military. He was a Royal Marine for a number of years. How's it going, fellas? Good, going, good, John. Thanks for going asking. Good. Going good, John. Thanks for having us, having me again, brother. All right. So, before we jump into you know what we're going to talk about, obviously with this uh, most recent school shooting, uh, pretty disturbing. I just want to send my condolences out to the friends and family of everyone who was killed and uh, affected by it. It's pretty ugly and. Um, I'm not sure where we go as a country in, in figuring it out, but one thing I will say is that I'm a I am a fan of putting armed security in schools, and I, I think that that may be a potential solution. You know, and and the rest of it I think we have to figure out as a as a country and a society. But uh, you know, terrible situation. 
And again, just wanted to give my condolences to the uh, friends and family of everyone affected by it. So, uh, Boyd, you just got your first tattoo. How was it? Yeah, it was pretty easy. Way easier than I expected. No, I'm just kidding. It was, it was, it was uh, for all the people listening who's had tattoos knows I'm full of shit. It, it hurt. Um, it was about two hours, and uh, but it was special. You know, it was... Um, had my wife there. I had military times there. And, uh, you know, I'll get into it here later. But uh, the tattoo was dedicated to my wife, and it's got a pretty special meaning. But, um, but yeah, it was a long couple hours. But thanks for asking, John. Yeah, it was pretty cool. You know, I saw the pictures on, on, up on social media. So, boy, just quickly before we jump into, you know, what we're going to talk about, can you just kind of briefly give some background information on your on yourself and your career yeah um so i retired i guess november of 16 a little over a year um i ended up spending 28 years in the navy i uh i spent all of that as as a navy seal first at seal team two and then finished my last 23 years at naval special warfare development group um spent a year bouncing around to different contracting jobs and uh Got a really unique opportunity to co-found this this cool company called Endeavor Life Sciences, which uh, which I look forward to telling you a little bit about. And uh, like everyone else out there, trying to learn how to be a civilian and 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 sell yourself, so to speak. It's counterintuitive, to say the least, to sell yourself. But um, you know, I got second chapter of my life, and I'm looking forward to it. Awesome, awesome. So, um, Bob, you, you served for a number of years in the. Uh... Royal Marines over in the UK. Um, can we just kind of talk about, like, go through your kind of the beginnings, what motivated you to join the Marines, and um, and maybe just, like, t walk through your career a little bit? Yeah, so I, I guess the, the the main things, are, like any kid that comes from a place where there's not really much in the way of, of doing anything when you haven't got much of an education like I didn't have, uh the, the avenues to generally go down are a, a lot a lot smaller so I just decided um, to go on to a building site as soon as I left school and I was working on a build site I was not overly happy with it but it was paying the bills as they say and it it, it, it did me right uh, and then a, f a friend of mine went to the careers office I joined him for just because there's something to do and then while he was in signing his paperwork he was actually going in to join the Air Force uh, while he was in signing his paperwork or, or doing his test or whatever needed to do, I kind of got hood like some guy who was in there who was a Royal Marine that was serving kind of talked me into doing a small pull-up test. I ended up doing it, and then the next thing I know, there was two tickets arriving in my house for, for the two different trains I needed to get to, to get to Limston, where the Royal Marines did their basic training. And then eight and a half months later, I was passed out with Royal Marine. Um, it's, it's, a, it's the... It's the longest basic training you can do. It's like the first um, first 16 weeks, I believe, is um, basic infantry soldiering and then the rest is commando training, uh, which is a lot tougher. Uh, and then I passed out uh, 28th October 2000, core birthday, and then I ended up pretty much rolling straight into Afghanistan. Uh, first tour of Afghanistan, I believe, was I think it was like end of 2001, start of 2002. It was not long after the crash. When the planes hit the towers, I was actually in Cyprus. And then the next day, we got 
asked to go straight away and protect the vessels going for the Suez Canal. And then we ended up just deploying into, um, well, we went back to the UK first and then deployed straight out to Afghanistan, to Bagram. Um, and did my first tour hey, Bob, there. Just quickly, I just had a question. Um, Shoot. And, you know, being on the American side, I, I read some about, you know, the British military and, and stuff like that. But so mm -hmm. just for everyone who goes into the Royal Marines, um, you know, as someone who's going to be an infantry guy. Yep. Everyone is commando qualified or, or is that just like you, yep. you decide? Okay. Okay. Yeah. But you can get, you can get like bin, you can get dropped at any point. So it's, it's like, it's still a selection process as it were, right. or you could be back trooped and try part of it again. And then if you fail, you, you can get kicked out, but yeah, everyone finishes the eight and a half months commando trained. Yeah. So just, you know, just kind of for the audience as our audience is mainly American. Um, so the Royal Marine commandos would be like equivalent to like what in the U S military? I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting one. It's, to me, having got to where I got to in my career, it's it's some somewhat similar to um, like the regulars, like the the. I wouldn't say it was like. It's kind of a tough one. I would say it's somewhat like um, Rangers, but then at the same time, it's somewhat somewhat like the Seals, mm. like the uh, the teams the the teams on the West Coast and the East Coast and. But it's 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 a different one because the the, the militaries are uh, set out slightly differently when it comes to that kind of thing. Right. There's a lot more like tiers of special forces units. There's a lot more tiers of infantry. There's a lot more bodies in general. So um, you could fall into different brackets. Like the the Royal Marines, they held the mountain and Arctic warfare um, protection for for the UK, which you could say that's like the mountain troops from the u.s and you know we did parachute and we did amphibious warfare so you could say that's maybe seals so there's a number of different ways you can look at it but i would never really go into a state where it was comparison because right. i wouldn't like to compare it to because you'd be taking something away for the guys that went through buds you'd be taking something away for the guys who went through ranger school and i think you'd be taking something away from the guys that went through commando training they're all individual that's why it's kind of hard to to, right. to kind, of kind of run like them in parallel unique yeah yeah yeah. So yeah, outside of training, you know, training, I look back on it, and Boyd can probably tell you this about buds. I mean, I'm not built for bullshit. So training for me was the worst thing that I've done in my life. You know, it's it's I wouldn't I would rather go to war ten times than go through training once. Um. So, like I said, once that was done, went to Afghanistan, deployed. Got back from Afghanistan, rolled into, uh, I think I, at that point, I decided to go into reconnaissance side, reconnaissance side of things. So I was doing the, the recon side of things in the Marines, joined them guys. Just as I joined them, we ended up doing the Iraq invasion in 03 and then kind of felt like we'd been deployed ever since. Um, I went across to a more specialized job um, at Royal Marines Pool. And then I served there and probably did, I don't know, the rest of the, what felt like the rest of the time deployed and I loved every minute of it. And then I did a small amount of time here stateside, um, doing a lot of cross training with um, Navy SEALs and, and cross work with them. And then once that was over, I went back to the UK and then 
was medically retired from a couple of fairly serious injuries I got that that conspired against me and the end result was I ended up getting medically retired and then um, ended up moving this side of the water which is where I still live now awesome and um you know just like so you getting medically retired are these injuries you received on deployments or during training or can you talk about that or yeah, I mean, the the back injury I got was from a helicopter that preferred to be on the ground and in the sky. Uh, and then my I broke my heel. I had like a two-inch crack up the back of my right heel. And oh, wow. it when, and I was doing that on, on doing some boat stuff. And then when I, when they both, or I thought they both healed, they kind of ended up working against each other. So my, when I would be all right with my heel my back would be bad and when my back felt good my heel would be bad and then they finally realized that it was just a combination of the two that was messing me up so at that point they said you can no longer be a door kicker and thank you and bye-bye right. and and what was the total time served in the uh, british military oh i'm like a fraction of a second in time compared to boyd i did 16 and a bit years I mean that's that's a decent amount of time though, it's especially in the last you know sixteen years or so, um, yeah. as you've been so active, you know. Yeah, I mean, we. I was lucky. I was really, you know, some people will, some people have said to me, and some people will continue to say that I was unlucky at how I hit it. Um, to me, I was lucky. I was lucky because I got to do what people joined up to do, but then I also got to do it with some of the greatest people I've ever met in my life. You know, and I'll never, I'll never, I would never want to give up those times. And I would never want to give those times back. And, you know, people will say, well, you pay for it in later life with your injuries or with this and with that. And, you know, I'm that guy that turns his head in a bar when they can't hear a word you're saying. But it's, it, it, it is what it is. You know, you pay the price for what you did and I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. Maybe awesome. probably a better back. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, and you know, it's it's one of those things where, and and you'll hear it. I, I talk to guys all the time, and at least on the U.S. side, there was a generation of special ops guys who felt like they weren't able to um, kind of use their skills and you know what they were training for for so many years, you know, as there weren't like any major conflicts. Um, and and I, I guess it sounds crazy to people who are not in the military. But, you know, when you when you become a soldier or a sailor, you know, airman, marine, and, and you have a, a job like that, you, you want to do your job. You know what I mean? It's, it's not like you want to just train all day and not do your job. So uh, it, it probably sounds a little crazy to um, most people, but it, it makes sense if you look at it from that angle. Yeah, it, it does. And it's, it's, I think the best person to speak to on this is the guy on the other end of the phone. He, Boyd can tell you from both sides of things. Right, right. Yeah, well, in, in typical Bob fashion, he, he totally undersells himself that he did 16 <laughs> years, but he, he was deployed for 14 years of that. So, but that, I wouldn't expect anything less from Bob. But now, that was a great point. You know, my first half of the career, you know, I was wondering what I signed up for. You know, we never did anything other than train and uh, with no real mission in sight. Um, so back then we did a lot of protection details where we protected people overseas and 
I did about four of them and three out of the four of them I got shot at every single time and they were, you know, closest calls in my career. But uh, it, just to put it in perspective, I did I did a thing over in Albania in, in 99 and uh, and I got a medal for what I did there and they recalled the entire command to give me a medal. And then since 9-11, you just get awards in the mailbox like after every deployment, yeah. you know, it's just... You know, just it was it was interesting. I here I am as you know standing up after this thing I did in Albania, and uh, and then come you know then the war started. So, um, uh, yeah, but yeah, typical Bob. He undersold himself again. So I have to I have to back him up. Well, I appreciate that. And coffee shop was the weirdest place I got a medal. That was an, <laughs> an interesting one. So, um... but. I, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, and to, to touch on that is like I come from a, a a military family, and my brother served where Boyd served um, on military details, that kind of thing, and and you know it it was you know it, it wasn't big on the news, but it was definitely big. You know, there was definitely a lot going on there um, uh, on the eastern side of Europe. There was a lot of things going right. on in the '90s that wasn't that weren't making the news. Right. You know, much the same way as there's stuff going on right now that's not making the news, but um, you know this 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 situation is still a war zone. It's, you're still you're still in a very weird, sketchy place. You know, with you know, luckily enough, with good people on your right and left. Right, and and that whole situation over there was was pretty ugly at a point. Um, and it, there's still tensions over there, but it's it's not as bad as obviously as it was during those times. But it, it was like a straight up genocide uh, at that time, and uh, yeah, know. my 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 brother was serving there and as a peacekeeper, and he got taken hostage. So oh, wow. I remember I remember coming home from the school one day when I was like thirteen, and my dad was kind of like, "Hey, just you know, can I have a word?" And I was like, "Well, you're my dad; you don't have to ask." Um, and he's just like, yeah, your, your brother's been taken hostage. We don't know where they are. This is this, this is this, this is this. Wow. And then they, they were only, they were, they were held for, you know, maybe I think it was six weeks, four or six weeks they were held. It might have been a bit longer. But uh, he, the lasting effects of it uh, on him, like just the word, the food that they were given, the water they were given, and the way that it kind of ruined some of the guys' insides, you know, guys coming out with serious, like, like ulcers and all that kind of stuff because right. of the, the stuff they were given as, as water and food is, you know, that's long lasting, you know, but you know, it, stuff like that didn't make the news even in the UK and they were UK soldiers. So it's, it's the, the fact that this, a lot of stuff goes on and, and you don't really hear about is, it doesn't surprise me anymore. It really doesn't. Right. So, so Boyd kind of, you know, speaking of protection details, um, can can you share a story with us of a you know maybe a, a time like that? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I only got so many stories, so if you're going to keep having me on, I got to keep some in my pocket. Right? <laughs> but, so, so the next time I'm on, remind me to tell you about Woody Harrelson in Sarajevo when we were there protecting a four-star admiral. Um, <laughs> so, that's, that's sort of a teaser, I guess. Uh, so, anyway, uh, yeah, so. I don't know why, but me and my buddy got picked to do um, a protection detail for General McChrystal. He was sort of doing a round robin trip, you know, all over the battle space to where we had people. 
And one of those countries was Iraq. And of course, uh, we were gone for about two and a half weeks. And I'll never forget you know, going down there and brag and jumping on General McChrystal's, <clears throat> I'm about to jump on his Learjet, you know, so we think we're really cool. Yeah. And, and uh, the command gave me this big ass, like stainless steel looking briefcase, you know, to, to put like the phones and a couple pistols in or whatever we were carrying. It was just horrendous looking. It looked like a Maxwell Smart lookalike. <laughs> And uh, and so we're kind of huddled around there, and it's General Crystal, and, and it was then Colonel Miller, you know, great human being, both of them, uh, now now General Miller, obviously. So we're standing there about to board, and I'm like, okay, and General Crystal looks at me and he's like, all right, well, Boyd's got the launch code, so we can go ahead and board the plane now. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And, you know, I'm a young seven or eight at the time, and General Crystal's already making fun of me, and I've only known him for two minutes. But... So we jump on this leader jet and we start heading over somewhere. I don't remember where, a couple different countries. But um, I remember his whole entire staff there, and and they're all reading the Harvard Business Review and you know War and Peace. And me and my buddy Chris are in the back watching some surf movie on our on the on the street. <laughs> so we put, it, we put it in perspective. But uh, so I guess I'll get to the story. Um, I guess we're in Tikrit. Uh, we're visiting one of the outstations there of our sister unit, and uh, great, they were doing great work. And uh, we're, we're getting ready to load, load two Hueys, and we're flying into Mosul. I might have that mixed up, Mosul, Tufik, or vice versa. I don't remember. But uh, for some reason, and I'll never remember or know why, but uh, as I'm doing the chalk load, I put everyone in the front helicopter. There's about six of us. So I crammed us all in there, and I just decided to use the trail helicopter as a flying spare. And uh, so we're coming in on short final into to Crit or Mosul. I don't remember which. And I look out the window, and the trail helicopter's on fire, you know, heading towards the earth. And uh, like, holy shit. So I you know, reach up and smack the pilot and point at it because he didn't see it. I was in the back and he circles around and we land about, you know, 200 meters from this burning helicopter, this burning Huey. And uh, I remember jumping out of that plane. I gave, a pist- I gave my pistol to Colonel Miller and I asked him to come with me and I started running. I'm like, well, I just left the guy that I'm supposed to be protecting the Huey behind me. So I turn around and I yell something, I don't remember what, and I run to this helicopter. And uh, yeah, three out of the four guys were out of the helicopter, but one was still in there. And uh, so I climbed in this thing, and it was on fire and whatnot, and, and I got the guy disconnected and dragged him out of there. And right as I pulled him out, this helicopter goes, you know, sort of cooks off on us. And um, yeah, so I pick him up, we go back to the helicopter and, uh, you know, throw everyone on the, the one remaining bird. Well, I guess the, the funny part of the story is get everyone back, got a good head count. You know, we go walking into the little operations center. You know, they're all panic mode because they think the general's dead. And, uh, you know, we walk in there all disheveled. One staff officer asked the general what happened. And the only thing that came out of his mouth was... Well, a helicopter crashed. The guy that was supposed to be protecting me left. He turned around and said, all women and children remain on board. And then he ran, he ran off to the burning helicopter. So, of course, typical, typical Army staff officers are looking at me like they're going to 
you know, pin, pin me to a stake. And I'm like, I didn't say that. Um, but uh, a great, great trip. Uh, I got the utmost respect for that that man, General McChrystal, and, and obviously now General Miller. You know, I was honored to be part of it. And uh, glad we got everyone home safe. And uh, we finished out that protection detail you know, about a week later in Afghanistan. Oh, I will caveat the story with General Crystal runs about a six-minute mile, maybe a 6.30. The yeah. beast. And he wanted me to run with him, right? <laughs> well, one, I'm not in that good of a shape as him. But two, I was carrying a radio, bullets, and a, and a gun. So I lasted with him for one lap around the airfield in Bagram, just one lap. And then I said he wanted to do eight more. So I pulled the Suburban into the center of the runway and let him, like, run around so I could keep an eye on him because I couldn't keep up with him anymore. So I'm glad he survived that deployment. And then, yeah. uh, so that's it in a nutshell, and I'll save the other two stories for another time. <laughs> and the, um, the helicopter, did it get hit by something, or was it just like a mechanical failure? Or Nah, my bad. I, yeah, it got hit by an RPG right in the tail rotor, so it spun and hit hard. And I don't know who that guy was that, that we got out of the helicopter that day, but um, he was the largest human I've ever seen, and he had body armor on. And once I picked him up, I realized I had to go through it now because not only was the general watching, but everyone else was. So somehow my little legs didn't buckle or break, and I got him back to the helicopter successfully. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and and McChrystal really uh, played a, a really kind of uh... – integral role in, in how uh, special operations uh, guys were being deployed in Iraq specifically, um, you know, going after like high value targets and stuff like that kind of um, changed the game a little bit. Um, so, you know, really important figure, um, you know, and that's a cool story. I appreciate you sharing that. No, no, thank you. And, and yeah, you got to remember General McChrystal inherited a war that was unfamiliar with anything we've ever done. Um, I mean, we've done some small manhunting in Sarajevo and, you know, obviously Somalia, but but nothing in a full-fledged combat zone like this. So, I mean, if you read his book, it's fascinating. I think it's called Teams of Teams. Yeah. You know, he created, he created a network that was built around looking for bad guys, whether it was Zarqawi or, you know, um, Omar or whoever. You know, he's the one that figured out how to build those networks with, with everyone. And, and in my opinion, you know, I know there's political stuff aside, you know, he did it tremendously well. Yeah. And I, I know it, it was like the, the combination of like the intel and, and having the, the guys to go out and execute the raids and stuff like that. Really kind of something that hasn't been done before. And it also included uh, allied troops as well from the UK and stuff like that. And, um, Guys really did kind of amazing work. If if you look at it in a larger picture of you know the amount of guys doing the work and and what they were able to accomplish. Yeah, it was impressive. Uh, guys like me and Bob would have just sat in a tent with our thumbs in our mouth, had it not been for the you know for the intelligence community that that came together and figured out how to how to use all these different assets to find out where the bad guys were. So. You know, looking back, you know, now now that I'm older, I made fun of them then. I was much younger. I didn't know any better. But, you know, looking back, we wouldn't have had a mission without all those enablers. So, yeah, you learn a lot as you get older, I guess. Right. And it's um, it's something I, I spoke about with a guy I had on for the last podcast. Uh, he, he was also at DevGuru. 
it was just one thing that we mentioned just quickly, and he, well, he he was talking about it where even though you have all these special operations guys and teams, everything that goes around it is required for these guys to be able to do the work that they do, the support staff, the uh, the intel guys, and stuff like that. And and, and obviously in in books and 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 media, the door kickers, what what's cool and stuff like that, but. It's really, they're part of a larger machine, you know? Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. I'll I'll let Bob add to this, but, you know, they give us a radio. We barely know how to turn it on. But some, some young kid hands it to us. It's encrypted. The headset works, and we put it on, and, and we get to go out and, and be the hard charger. But, you know, there's like six people that had to make all that work, whether it's a supply guy that got the radio and a comm kid that encrypted it and, and a maintenance guy that fixed the headset so i know bob's got that same experience uh, where he works yeah and then when it doesn't work you turn around and say fix my radio yeah <laughs> it, it is it's, it's totally true and i think the the further you got in your career and the higher the, up in the ranks you got the more you relied on them uh, and the more you realized what it is they brought to the the, the table and you know and the, the cool side of of the hollywood movies and all that of of you, you know, every night, I mean, every night we would go out, but it was all of the work had happened for the hours and hours and hours, you know, and, and hours prior to us going out. And, you know, people don't just launch on targets. There's like full things that, that have to be in place that are put in place that are weeks and weeks in advance of that. So it, it's absolutely true. It's, it's like, you know, it's like typing a sentence on a keyboard. We were just the enter at the end. Right. And and Bob, you, you had trips both to Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think like three, three or four to Iraq and God knows how many to Afghanistan. Uh, I think that everyone that ran at that same time will probably say the same thing. It's I think mine was in the ballpark of maybe seven or eight maybe less maybe more i don't know um i kind of feel like they all blended into one i would always say i'm probably not going to come back here again and then lo and behold you'd be back there within a year or or over a year but yeah it's and then, uh, and then bob, bob I, I knew i want to interrupt you just for a second I, if you if you're like me you know when we were doing our three-month pumps you'd come back and see some poor army kids managing yes. the yes. same goat because he's doing a year tour i felt so horrible and it just, you know, those guys, man, they, they, they paid the man. So I just wanted to do a shout out for those guys doing that job. Yeah, there was a there was a group of guys. I remember being at Bagram in like it was cold. It was like the winter. Um, so it was when it was Anaconda. So it was when Turbo got hurt um, on Roberts Ridge. So it would have been the spring of 02. Uh, and I remember it was the old iron runway. I don't know if you remember that, Boyd. It was the old Russian runway that was at Bagram. It was like made out of the Russians put loads of metal um, kind of things down. And it was just like a made runway rather than like a tarmac one. And then there was like a dirt one. And the, only thing that, and the only thing that was there was that old control tower. Uh, and then I remember being in the hangar. And what we used to do in the hangar is we would have a sentry on the top, the top 
uh, one of the top corner posts. So if you imagine the eastern side of the hangar that was just the old hangar that was there and nothing else at background, the northeast corner used to have like a sentry position on where we could overlook the back. And then we had an old disused house that was off in front of the hangar. That was our forward overwatch. This is when the Northern Alliance were, were working with us and going out and doing all the funky stuff. Um, I was a young guy at the time, so I was pretty much just doing sentry. And uh, I, I remember an earthquake hit because, you know, whatever. You didn't. I've never been in an earthquake before. I was like a 19-year-old kid, 20-year-old uh, kid, and uh, an earthquake hit. And then I was at the top of this tower, and then the, like, the guys were like, well, do you want to come down now? And I'm like, why? And they were like, look. And this, the corner of the hangar had pulled away from the rest of the hangar. Oh, wow. So you're just hanging on. You're just like, all oh, right, okay, yeah, I think I'll come down now. <laughs> yeah, we'll try and find somewhere else to put a sentry position in. But yeah, it was, it's changed a lot. And I remember going back on one of the, the last times. Well, in fact, I went back, you know, 2007, I think it was a dentist uh, in that old hangar. And the whole place of it, Disney Drive, which used to be just a dirt trail, um, turned into this like metropolis of, of forces. Um, so it's amazing how how quick it all changed from from when we were originally there and until when we when we came back, uh, you know, a few tours later. It's like we did Af we did Afghan and then we went away and did Iraq a couple of times, two or three times, and then went to Afghan again, and it's like it all changed. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a good example. I I think my first my first pump there, Bob. I was we were cleaning the porta potties because no one else was there yet. Yeah. Um, and we couldn't have any lights on other than our headlamp. My last pump there, I remember complaining when they were out of espresso at the Green Bean Coffee Mart. So. <laughs> and what? It's so you know, true. And they delivered pizza on little motorcycles up and down the Bagram Road. So, yeah, things <laughs> changed. And five years from now, it'll probably be a PCS tour, and they'll have an elementary school there, I assume. <laughs> it's um, it, But it's it's interesting, um, you know, the, and I, obviously you guys have the experience with it, but the, the kind of differences of the conflict uh, between Afghanistan and Iraq and, and some of the differences of, of the challenges that were faced there and... Um, you know, uh, obviously Afghanistan is is still uh, in a difficult spot today. Um, yeah, I think even though Iraq had, you know, they're just dealing with this ISIS situation and whatnot. Uh, they, I believe, they have a stronger government. Um, if if it, the word strong can be used, but um, uh, you know, kind of very different uh, conflicts, and and then it's just. I guess it's kind of interesting to see, you know, guys bouncing back and forth to the same fight and, and, you know, and how they take those experiences. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing like it in, in the history of battle. You know, I mean, my little brother alone, I think who's at, who was at the same unit as me, you know, I think he probably, that's all he knew was war, you know, and uh, that's hard on people. You know, he did his 20 years, so he came in right before, you know, basically war every single year. And I think he left with the Purple Heart and six or seven bronze stars and, you know, and all the internal scars that go with not, no, knowing nothing but war your entire career. And uh, so it's, it's just a challenge. And there's there's people out there that even surpassed what I just mentioned. And they're still going there to this day. Um, so my hat's off to him. But, uh, you know, I think, John, you and I talked about this before is when you have that. You know that's the VA's burden now. That's a, that's a hard deal to to try to grasp. 
Yeah, and um, it's it's different. Like if you look back at the um, you know, like the Great Wars, like World War Two, where guys were deployed for three years straight or something like that, right? And then came home, or even four years or five years. But and and that was like the the wars of attrition, right? So thousands and thousands and thousands of people were getting killed in single battles, and 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 that was obviously very difficult to deal with. But now you fast forward to today's wars where you you might go out for four to six months or some people are doing a year, you know, whatever the, the length is, and then you come home and that's where the challenge is because now you have to switch, turn the switch off and then turn it back on and then turn it off and back on. So it's it's different challenges that are faced, you know, the warriors are facing from these different wars and generations, but it's still a challenge nonetheless, you know. Yeah, well, I've I've always said um, that World War II would have been the most, you know, or one of the most unpopular wars in history had we had social media. Oh, yeah. um, you know, we were carpet bombing entire cities and, and entire cities of, you know, of the UK and Bob can speak to this were being bombed, but it never made the news, you know, and, and you know, you had this huge battle cry for whether it was Japan or, or you know, not Nazi Germany and we're doing the right thing. But if, if you were to show some of the repercussions of things that that war did, uh, it would be unpopular. Whereas our war, one soldier gets hurt in an hour or two at, at most, you know, the United States is hearing about it and it's on Fox News and CNN and, and it really, really becomes unpopular quickly, even though percentage wise, you know, we've gotten a lot better at protecting our troops and, and protecting civilians. Uh, so I, I know Bob's probably got a better perspective from the UK on, on that, on popularity and what's, you know, what's kosher and what's not. So I'll let him add to that. Oh, yeah, we've well, got to remember, I come from a country that conquered the world through brutality. Um, so the 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 thing that that you see most, I, I would say, is uh, is people's just their perspective. That you can have one situation and like ten different points of view, but it all depends on how many followers you've got, which is the thing that 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 gets the the point across, or how many times it's shared. I mean, you'll you'll see it. You'll see it with this this shooting that's happened recently on people's idea on gun laws, and then you'll see it, you know, with with a soldier that that, that might have passed away, and the parents are in upcry because of the standard of equipment he had. It's like you know we all had shitty equipment, you know, at one point right at the very start before all the funding came in. You know, none of us had good stuff. We were all working with second rate gear in a lot of ways, but we and we still got the job done. You know, it's but. Right and rightly so. In a lot of cases, parents, you know, they're listened to, but we still have to remember they're in a situation of grief. And um, so, when you're hearing people say that you know our troops are not getting this equipment in this situation, you know, it's kind of like a recurring theme for my entire career. We, we in a lot of ways, we didn't get what it was, but because social media is the way that it is, um, a lot more things gather weight a lot quicker than than what they used to. Um, and there, are, people blow a lot of things out of proportion as well. Once again, I want to give a thank you to my sponsors at BioWave. It's the non-opioid way to block chronic or acute pain at the push of a button. It's recognized by the VA, prescribed by the VA, FDA cleared and made in America. If you're a veteran or active military that needs help managing pain, visit BioWave.com and learn how to get treatment at no cost to you. BioWave is used by 
several professional sports teams and college teams as well. It's also used by Naval Special Warfare, the Pentagon, Walter Reed Medical Center, and numerous uh, medical centers around the world. So if you're interested, check out BioWave.com for more information. Yeah, I, I think um, that that started with Vietnam because I, if I'm not mistaken, Vietnam was the first war where there were like camera crews from like, you know, ABC, CBS and stuff like that were on the ground. And it, it was the first time where, um, you know, people were able to see like images of what it was, you know, uh, as mm-hmm. whereas before it was just... I'm- this kind of heroic picture of it, you know, this is what wars, aside from the people who experienced it, obviously in, in Europe, you know, Europe was kind of uh, destroyed, you know, but. Um, but it was still, on, um, if you look at it even now, if you were to go back at historian in a lot of ways, you look at the UK um, news and then you look at the German news, you know, one country's heroes, another country's villains, as they say. And it's like the the propaganda of old school news. It was like, you know, we're still on the front foot. We're still doing this when you look back on it now. And the truth was the opposite. Um, and I think that what Vietnam gave is it gave an, an un, a non-propaganda kind of viewpoint that they could look at as well as the regular news outlet, outlets um, where it was uncensored, like they were getting it raw. Um, and I think that there was the shock value of, of that in a lot of ways that might have affected people but that's just obviously an opinion more than anything there's there's i agree with you i think that that might have been one of the first occasions when it all came about right and there's like a picture um i forget the circumstances and i i should know it but there's a picture uh i believe it was a south vietnamese army guy shooting I don't know if it was an MVA or a Viet Cong guy, or he was accused of being a Viet Cong guy, and he shot him like right in the head on video, and people were like, "Holy point shit. blank!" Yeah, and people were just I've like, seen "Holy it. shit!" Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Even like if you look at the the, the Tet Offensive, it was in. Uh, was it? I don't want to screw the date up. It might have been 1968 or 69, but. Basically, the Tet Offensive was this large offensive by uh, the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong. It was like a simultaneous attack on on all kind of U.S. bases in South Vietnam. And it, it was a surprise attack. It was during the, the holidays. And ultimately, it was like a huge military blunder. But because the media, there was an anchor, he famously we lost Vietnam or it was a stalemate. And because of that, public opinion obviously was already kind of sour. And then it changed from there. And then it turned into this, oh, you know, we're losing Vietnam. But militarily, we were winning it. And I believe there was a, a North Vietnamese general who famously years later said that Tet, the Tet Offensive was a horrible idea. But politically, it, 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 they won it because of the media, you know? Yeah. Who controls the media controls the mind. You know, I I I think that you know people when they look at the likes of Facebook and all that kind of stuff, you need to take newsfeed out of out of it and just call it feed because people think that if they see it on there, it's true. Um, but that's like a whole different conversation rabbit hole to go down. Right. 
So so Boyd before you um before you get off you talked about your tattoo in the beginning. Uh can we just talk about kind of what makes it special for you and and why Military Times was there and and why it was being documented? Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm, yeah, I apologize. I got another call here in like 15 minutes or so, but so we uh, we we patented this pretty cool thing uh, our company did called Everance, where you're allowed to which, which we can, can encapsulate DNA safely and add it to a tattoo. So um, it took a while for me to figure out what I wanted to do and 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 what that tattoo should do. So the company is built around you know people are best when uh, when they're inspired, uh, and they have everyone has someone that inspires them and motivates them. And for me, that's, that's my wife. So my wife has cystic fibrosis, but she still runs, does races, works out, you know, manages the house with me gone over 20, we've been married over 25 years. So she's the hero, you know, that I get to see every day, even though I've worked with her my entire career. So what I did is uh, I got her DNA encapsulated and uh, you can look at the tattoo on my, um, my page there. But uh, it's basically of some lungs. You know, lungs are what's affected most by cystic fibrosis. So um, in, in my tattoo, there's a black rose and a red rose. And what I did is I added, added my wife's DNA to the red rose of that tattoo. She actually was able to add the evidence into the ink when my good friend Frank Romano from up in New York uh, did the tattoo, did the actual rose. And if I didn't mention it earlier, the thing really hurt. So I hope I I've said that already. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so no, it was just powerful, man. It was everyone that's listening has someone, something, or some event that inspires them. And we're not trying to change the tattoo world or or, or change something that's been around for three thousand years. It's just a way for people out there to stay connected to what inspires them. If they do a tattoo, great. Um, if not, if it's not for them, that's okay too. But uh, that's what I did with it, and and uh, I'm pretty excited about it. And Bob can answer any questions you have about the company he works with us he's got a pretty powerful story about you know what he was going to do with Everance and uh you know if you're up for it he can share it with but but I certainly appreciate you having me on John uh, anytime you want to do this again I got a couple more stories I can certainly um exaggerate like I have been doing to make them pretty good yeah yeah definitely you know boy I definitely appreciate it um you know the response we got from the last time you came on uh, I, I know you've seen some of it on social media, uh, you know, people kind of commenting, you know, towards you directly and stuff like that. Uh, it was pretty cool. And, um, and I just, you know, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks, John. And, and Bob, I'll talk with you later, my friend. And uh, again, I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, so Bob. So what, what Boyd was referring to as far as your the idea you had for getting a tattoo can we can we get into that yeah i mean I'm, i've i've kind of kept a couple of ideas open i i'm a great believer in in positivity i mean like bringing things that have you know affected you in your past and using them in a in a positive way rather than a negative way yeah. and uh I've, I've said it a lot to my friends in the past i'm like i've dealt with everything that you know i've i've come against and i think that you should that have that cheerfulness in the face of adversity, that that happy kind of feeling when when shit happens. And and I've I've got a um, a very quick story, and and this is not you know worry or anything else like that. But we did a we did an op over overseas in in um, in one of the 
one of the desert countries and and we jumped into it and it was like pitch black at night and we did a, a, a high altitude jump into it landed uh and i was landing next to a friend of mine who was actually like i was best man at his wedding probably three months well three months beforehand and uh and when we landed he was like look you know we, were, we had been flying around for a while we'd come across one i need to I'd take a leak and I was like, okay. So he like, like, so I'm covering him while he walks, like he like crawls across to this bush, which is only like maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 feet away. So he's peeing away in this bush, that kind of stuff. So then we get up and we tactically move over to where the guy, in a direction where, you know, the, the, the guys thought the planned rendezvous was, you know, after we landed, uh, which is always around the team leader because he didn't want to do any walking. Um, so, once we we've got about maybe 200 200 yards 300 yards away he's like he's like bob we have to stop i'm like what's up he's like i took my glove off to 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 take a leak he's like i've dropped my wedding ring i'm oh, like shit. dude you you've been married for like three months i'm like i've known him and his wife for years you know like three months earlier i was getting drunk at their wedding in uniform for this for whatever and i'm like well right okay so i on my on my i used to have one of those um Garmin Fortrexes on the back of my my uh, my Demarco my M4 and I was like right okay so I'm going to backtrack I'm like you just kind of will keep a you know keep an eye out on and I'm just going to look at my GPS so we backtrack head back to this bush find this like piss patch in the middle of like this country <laughs> in the middle of what is in effect the start of an op. And then he's on all fours while I'm covering him, searching for a wedding ring. <laughs> so then he finally, he finally, and this whole time I'm like, it's funny because this is what I mean about the cheerfulness in the, in, in the face of adversity thing. It's like, I'm whatever, you know, it, this op that we did that night turned out to be one of those, you know, that you, you have to wash your clothes two or three times to get all the claret out. And uh, it's, but all I'm worried about the whole time is this little four foot blonde woman that he's married to giving me shit because I've done something <laughs> and giving him shit because he's lost his wedding ring. And then it's somehow being my fault. And then that kind of thing. So it's like putting things into perspective. The perspective is blown. It's, it's, it's just that weird mentality of, 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 of the military or, or people in those situations. You know, you end up finding a wedding ring, went out, linked up with the guys, went out, did the op, got the helicopter out had breakfast slept you know that's just the way that it was like every night thankfully we weren't losing the wedding ring a lot but it's stuff like that you know it's that connection it's that the thing that you know a lot of guys wouldn't wear a wedding ring you know they were you know they didn't want people to know they were married if for any reason they got caught or or just something like that and this was right. the, the days before the silicon wedding rings were all more people were wearing them you know and then other guys would you know i've got a buddy that carried a photo with his daughter he's got he's got a 21 year old daughter and now you know back then you know she was a lot younger but every single op every single deployment every single everything he had a a, a small fablond you know uh, uh, picture of him and his daughter um from when he was like 19 however he was when when she was born that he took on every single op with him and i've got another buddy who carried a, a flag with him on every single one stars and stripes flag every single op he went on you know and then other people carry different things and it's that kind of thing. It's that you know we're in the middle of a we're in the middle of a situation where we're about to go into a pretty you know turned out to be a pretty gnarly shit fight, uh, and all you're worried about is you know a wedding ring or something like that. And it's stuff like that 
the that connection to home, that link to home when you're away, the you know that people need in some cases. You know, it doesn't have to be in war. It can be, you know, you're just you know moving to the other side of the country, or you know you've lost a loved one, or even anything else. For me, it's more about the positives. I'm getting my son's DNA in into a tattoo on my arm. But I already have a sleeve. You know, I, I spoke about this recently, but I'm on my sleeve. I split it up into three different parts. And I was lucky enough that a friend of mine that, uh, that also knew some of the people that my friends had died was the one that did my tattoo. Okay. Uh, Joey, no, Joey Nobody is from your neck of the woods, actually. But um, he, he, we split it up in three different parts. And the bottom part of my tattoo is remembrance, you know, remembrance of all my friends that passed away, all the guys that, that died and all the ways that we remember them, the drinking, the beer, playing the music, all that kind of stuff. It's all in the bottom part of my tattoo. And then the elbow is the vengeance, you know, the vengeance of going after the guys that did certain things and, you know, or making sure that things get put right the right way. Uh, and then, the top half of it was the release, you know, the, the getting over it, moving on, you know, you know, the world keeps turning kind of thing. Just remembering it as best you can, remembering what they did and try and help their families and survive through their families as best you can. And I think that's extremely important. Um, but, you know, this, the reason I fell in love with this idea way before it was like the company was formed when we were just talking about it around a, a meal one night is uh is exactly that it's the positivity there's people out there that have got tattoos that have been through some horrific shit that have never been in the military right you know that, that have survived some really bad situations in life and then they get tattoos to 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 move forward from that and I, that to me is the thing that appeals most that thing that people draw on and they look at that and say you know four down seven times stand up eight you know, it's like I'm I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna move forward and I'm gonna remember that my past is is exactly that in my past. So I think that I, I at one point thought about getting um I mean I buried quite a lot of friends and unfortunately there was an incident that involved um a crash where a large number of them passed away. Um I would I at one point wanted to commemorate at least one of them. Um, one of my friends that died over those 15, 16 years that I was in, in my, my existing tattoo. But then I decided to, to go with the positive side of things instead. Um, the final design I've spoken to about, to my friends four or five times, but ultimately the, the DNA that will be contained with it will be my son's um, because he's my life now. Um, I have a nine-year-old daughter as well. Um, but, you know, I'm, I want to put my sons in there. Um, the, the other side of that, and this is, I made alluded to this, like in a joke the other day is, you know, imagine if you got, if you imagine if you're a huge New York Yankees fan and you could have like the grass from, from the field put into a tattoo or, you know, or, you know, the, where you grew up as a kid, you know, or something like that, you know, some commemorative piece that would, that would really link you to something that, to, that you felt powerful and that, that drew you to a certain direction. I think it's I think it's a good thing, and I think that I think that we can potentially, you know, help people just maybe a little bit more, you know, 
the people that get tattoos to commemorate and to do those other kind of things might be open to it. And like Boyd says, this has got nothing to do with changing the tattoo world. This is everything to do with helping those that have an emotional connection to something. Just, you know, realize it a little bit more. Yeah, I, I'm glad you said that because I feel like the only way to be able to move forward from an event like kind of a traumatic event or a situation where you lost somebody who was close to you is to look at it in a positive light and to, to learn from it or at least to try and learn from it, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, it kind of drives you nuts. And um, I, I think that's pretty unique about Everence, and I, I think it's it's pretty awesome because, you know, tattoos are an expression, right, of um, the symbols and the tattoos and things like that that have meaning to people. And, and I think Everence just kind of takes it a step further um yeah you know with adding the dna and stuff like that it's pretty cool yeah and to me it was always a marriage it was like it's a marriage of two things tattoo is anyway i think it's it's the expression of the individual and the the artistry of the person that's doing it i think it's like a marriage of those two things and all we're doing is just adding something else to that marriage you know we we don't want to we don't want to change the expression of the individual and we don't want to affect the artistry of the artist. We're just trying to involve something else within that marriage of those two things. And I mean, it's a powerful feeling. It really is a powerful feeling. Um, you know, Greg, who, who the big Texan, as I call him, he's got, you know, the stuff that he's got and no doubt that will come out in the past because I would like for him to be able to tell his own story. But, you know, his, his side of things is, is, you know, it's, it's a connection that you can't even explain. And when I try and get him to talk about it now, he's just like, you know what? It's like, it's one of the best things I did. Um, you know, I'm always away. We're always moving. You know, the kids are always away. It's like, and I just put one on my Instagram yesterday of a, a former SEAL who's fairly big in the, the CrossFit world called Josh Bridges, who another buddy of, of, of ours, uh, Ed Slocum out of Tucson, tattooed a abstract version of the, the trident on his arm. So it's like oh, nice. the eagle, the eagle, the trident, you know, the anchor, the, the stars and stripes. And you look at it and you look at that piece of work and that piece of work from an artist point of view, from a piece of art is phenomenal, like nice. phenomenal. But then when you realize that in the tips of that trident is J- Josh's son's DNA, it just for him and for no one else, you know, everyone else is like, yeah, that's a cool thing. But for him, like that's like really, really powerful, you know, and, and, and I think it's totally down to the individual and how the individual sees it and, and how the individual uses that internally and, and manifests that in a positive and, and, you know, powerful way. Well, right. And, and that's what, expression is all about absolutely what is it to you and and i like how you said that because when i got my tattoo i have like a japanese style dragon uh Mm -hmm. you know with the wind bars like the black background and stuff and i love that shit yeah one of my favorite tattoo artists in the world is out of new york Uh, mike rubendall he does all the japanese stuff oh yeah yeah yeah. um, close friend and great human being yeah he he's like um he in, in in new york there's like a kind of a a couple of shops that are well known for the Japanese style. Uh, his shop is one of them. 
and then obviously he, I believe he's the one who started it, the, the shop that he's at, and, and he's the owner of it. And, yeah, Kings um, Avenue. King's yeah. And his work is just phenomenal. But uh, I, I went to another shop, and but yep. they're, they're all like, they all know each other. They're all like in the same kind yeah. of ballpark, you know? And, it's um, a big family. The tattoo community is a big family. It's a great yeah. thing to, to witness as an outsider looking in. It's a really kind of beautiful thing how they look after each other, you know, when people are sick or whatever. It's it's kind of humbling just to observe it. Yeah, and it's cool. It's also cool, like, for me, like, to... Because uh, I'm my tattoo is completed, but it took me almost a year to finish it up. And it was oh, just... Oh, we you, you were just talking about that before I rudely interrupted you. Tell me about your tattoo again. Oh, no. So, yeah, it's just a, it's a, a black dragon tattoo. Mm-hmm with the traditional clouds gray clouds and then like the black wind bars as like the background and i have some lightning and some um and what made you choose that one or that kind of thing well i, I was interested in the japanese tattoos to begin with yeah you know i, I like like aesthetically i liked how it looked and then yeah. i also added some uh, cherry blossoms in it um so in in the on my forearm i have uh, what's known as a, a Mitsutomo. So it's a, um, it's a, um, it, it has a uh, man, heaven, and earth on it in, in Japanese kanji. And it's really supposed to kind of, cool. it's like, yeah, it's like in a circle. It's, it's kind of to represent the cycle of life, you know? And that's um, cool. So I have that and I have some cherry blossoms. And, uh, you know, for me, the cherry blossoms are, they represent that uh, life is beautiful but short-lived. So, mm-hmm. the um, bit sweet, right? And, yeah. Um, in the in like Western culture, the dragons are kind of looked at as like evil or kind of negative, but in Eastern yeah. culture, they're you know strong and powerful and wise and and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I lived in Hong Kong for a number of years. It's oh, did it's, you? Yeah. It's, I'm I'm a I'm a great lover of culture. I mean, I lived. Yeah, me I'm too. British, but my dad was in the military. You know, I was I lived in Belfast during the troubles in the '80s, and my dad's Catholic and my mom's Protestant. You know, oh, it's wow. like so. You have I, I've grown up in a very kind of eclectic way and very kind of lucky way, should I say? You know, I lived over Europe and Cyprus, Hong Kong, those kind of places. And and one thing that you realize and and you know, one thing you realize from going to war and all these places and that is everyone's the same. You know, everyone's exactly the same, no matter how you say it. It's like, and when when I lived in Hong Kong and trying to learn that culture and learn about that culture, and like you were saying about the dragons and how Hong Kong Harbor is set up in a very kind of feng shui kind of way with the, um, you know, the hill to represent the dragon and the water and in the harbor and all that kind of stuff is is really cool to me because it, it's 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 like a, a visual representation of of someone's feelings of someone the way that someone looks at art the way that someone looks at whatever it's a really cool thing it's a really really cool thing and it's much the same way as you were talking about those cherry blossoms just then yeah and it's and personally i, I love to travel I, I was just in europe a couple of weeks ago and um and then in the summer i was in japan and in, in Japan, like I'm a big kind of a history geek, so I was able to visit this cave in uh, a place called Kumamoto. It's like kind of like in the kind of in the boondocks uh, in a way, but so it's a famous Buddhist cave. And at this cave was this guy's considered the most famous samurai in Japanese history. 
Uh, his name is Masashi Miyamoto, and he wrote this book called The Book of I've heard, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's like really famous, guy, yeah. And um, he wrote this book name. called The Book of Five Rings, and it's it's kind of like The Art of War. Like, it's on a, on kind of similar par to it. Mm-hmm. When you when you visit this cave, there's one bus that goes in the mountains and away from the city and stuff. Quiet. Yeah, and of course it's like the hottest day of the year. <laughs> it so, gets humid over there as well, right? Oh yeah, I was sweating bullets, man. And um, like <laughs> it, it, it's funny because you get you get to where it's at, and there's like a a kind of a big statue of him there, so that like you know you're at the area, and then. You walk in and it's like there's just like fields and mountains and there's and we're like we're like looking around. I'm like, where the fuck is the entrance to this place? And so we're like walking up and down the hill, and we finally figure it out. But it's really cool. There's 500 Buddha statues on the way to the cave, so it's just really cool. And um, different, right? Yeah, different from anywhere you see. Yeah, so cool. You know that that piece of writing really has affected and kind of been around, you know, since he wrote it in the um, 16th century. I'm sorry, in the 1600s. And um, it, it's just it's just all cool stuff. So, Bob, if you don't mind, you know, I was hoping maybe you can share a story with the audience, your experiences while you're deployed uh, in combat and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so... I mean, I think the 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 thing that always, you know, stuck in my mind is that you'd always have that that sense of, you know, if something happened, would you, how would I react? You know, because everyone's always that big gung-ho, you know. Uh, as soon as it happens, I would do this, and then I would do that, and then I would take over, and it would be whatever. And the one thing that's that, that was shocking to me in a lot of ways is when we did go in a ship fight and, and some people, you know, reacted in, in – in negative ways thankfully no one that that was in my unit and all that kind of stuff with but sometimes when we had um guys on the ground that you know that that worked with us that 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 kind of shared a lot of the same kind of ethos and that kind of stuff and not not really a special ops side of things but more of a just an attachment um and i think that one um, years ago that that we did when we were just after this you know one guy just happened to be in a, a large group of buildings that that we flew two helicopters in and as we were flying in the the one of the helicopters kind of um got vittled up as they say got got hit by a lot of small arms fire and larger fire and, and ended up having to pull off so by then we'd already landed and we'd already got off and there ended up being only what 16 of us on the ground and in a bit of a ship fight if i'm honest um and the 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 guy, luckily we had a fairly decent amount of pre-fires going, but as we were, you know, going into this, you're in a situation there where the bird can't come back in because it's too loud, it's too heavy, um, and all you're left with is just you and the the 15 guys on the 15 other guys that are there, you know. And it turned out you just end up going into this mode of, and this is what I always say is is like, it's never about fighting for you; it's always about fighting for the guy to the left and to the right. And that that never really set with me until I was in that situation. Um, you always end up being that thing where you're like, you know, people will fight for their lives, people will fight for survival, whatever. But then when you get into that situation, you realize it's not about you. 
you know, it's about the the guys that you're with. You know, it's the guy that you were best man at his wedding. It's the guy that you went away drinking on a drinking holiday with or something like that before you deployed. You know, it's it's all those things. And we ended up just getting in this, you know, I forget where it is. We ended up just getting in this this huge ship fight and then it just turned into a hornet's nest. There were just like guys coming out of all these buildings and et cetera, et cetera. And luckily we had a good handful of guys on the ground that, you know, could that fight to a point where, you know, we leveled it and then we got to a point where we could call someone in. And then we ended up calling the bird back in and then we got to a position where we were off. There was a, and I don't know whether I should tell this or not, but there was a, a, a point in it where I was like in a ditch, like in a covering fire in a, in a ditch, like, you know, crouched behind some like natural cover. And uh, the other guy was like facing my six. And, and then one of the other guys came up to like talk to us about air support or something. And he's like comes over and he puts his foot on this rock. And he's like talking to me or whatever. And obviously you're in a zone and you're in on MVGs. So your peripheral vision isn't the best. And I always said, it was just like, you just lived your life in different shades of green. And yeah. and then after about two or three minutes of him talking to us, I was like, dude, look down where you've got your foot. And he had his foot on one and they're no longer living guys. And oh. I was like, I was like, that's not a rock. <laughs> and then it was just one of those surreal moments of, okay, let's, let's kind of move on from that. And, but it's just, it's in that situation where you, you know, you're so ingrained in what's going on. It's like you're face to face talking, you're dealing with what's going on. But then you have that, that moment of like, well, how did that just kind of really happen? And you joke about it afterwards, but at the time it's like, come on, let's go. Um, but you know, and, and then you just, you get out and we ended up going out, getting on the, the, the helicopter and getting out and, you know, we were, and everyone was good. No one got hurt. I mean, a guy got shot in the chest, but hit his plate luckily enough um and then you know we we laugh about it it's the same as always you know you go back you eat you, you put your clothes in the wash you eat breakfast you go to sleep it's just the, the way that it was you know and there and here's the thing about that is that's one story that's my story but there are like thousands of guys out there and thousands of guys that are continuing to run and gun like they are at the moment that i've got stories just like that if not worse and you know and I think that the, when you dwell on things, when you like focus on, you know, shit could have gone bad that night or, you know, it was really bad and, oh God, we're so lucky. Instead of just going, hey, do you remember that time when you thought that guy was a rock? Yeah. You know, and, you know, you know it's, it's looking at it in that perspective because I think that there's certain elements of, of when you can be too consumed by thoughts of something and you overthink things. Yeah. And I think the guys in the military, they just have that, I don't care, you know, what happened, happened and laugh about it. And you've got to do that, you know, and you've got to joke and you've got to joke on one another and you've got to joke about it. And because I think the only alternative then is to, you know, kind of lose your mind with it. And nobody wants that. And, you know, I'm very open about to my friends about the way that, you know, I deal with things. I deal with, I'm totally transparent. You know, I, any, every time I come back from a deployment, I go and jump in a sensory, de sensory deprivation tank. I go in there and I'm like, let's do this kind of thing um and I, I did that for many years and you know I've, I've faced every single thing that that's happened in my life head on you know and i don't intend to change now you know that's a, a good approach kind of deal with things as they come and um again just 
being able to learn and and deal with like a negative situation and turn it into a positive or just turning it into a lesson learned you know versus kind of dwelling on it in a in a negative way and and kind of getting depressed over it you know um, yeah exactly and and I think that's just really important in in life in general you know to be able to do that so you you've recently retired from the uh from the military I did 2016. So obviously doing something like that for so long, you're, you're really immersed in it. Um, it's very secret and not, you're, you're very like kind of enclosed in what you're doing. Um, and then now you, you get out, you're no longer doing that. You kind of have to find your way in the civilian world again. How has that been that transition for you? So I guess for me, it was, it was, it was more for the fact that I would really like to continue doing what I was doing, but you know, there's the powers that be have their decisions. But I think at the same time, I was almost ready to leave in some ways because I hit it so well, the like timing wise, because I hit the timing wise so well, the, it got to the end and there was a lot of BS creeping in from what I was used to mm. the, um, you know, oh, it was like, tough. Like, like politics and stuff? And, uh... Yeah, a lot more politics and a lot more people that just joined the war right at the end and, like, thought they knew better. And when it came to certain situations, you know, it's like I kind of felt like at the point at the end where, you know, I had a fairly decent grasp on on the people in certain countries and, and what they liked and what they didn't like and, you know, how we would get on with certain things. But I think it's only time that does that. But, like, right. transitioning across for me was fairly easy. Um, not easy in the sense of, of like the job side of things. I mean, it's a very different tempo. It's a very different thing. And cause you're normally used to doing a job with only alpha males. It's like your sense of humor and your mindset and the way you speak to people and everything else is completely polar from what's acceptable in the real world. Right. Right. Um, so that was, that was one of the, the toughest side of things outside of that. I think I was lucky because, I was in a job where it wasn't very military kind of BS based on a day-to-day basis. Right. So um, I wasn't kind of indoctrinized uh, in certain ways, like um, the military is known to do to people. Right. Um, but to me, it was just finding your way. It's like, I mean, I joined, you know, I left school at 16 and I joined the military at 19 and I knew from 19 then this is what I was going to do and this is how I was going to do it. And I knew my direction that I was going. And I think that when you come out into the civilian world, I think you just have this, you know, what's my direction? What's my focus kind of thing. And, you know, people sometimes joke and say, Oh, you know, guys are in the military come out and they're waiting to be given an order to do something and they do it really well. And it's like, there is part of that, which is true, but it's also to do with like focus. I mean, I've known guys that have left the military that are entrepreneurs who are like hyper focused. I yeah. just this is this is what I'm gonna do and this is how I'm gonna do it. You know, and and then but then there's also guys that are not, you know, and it's not a coincidence in some ways where there's um in the UK there's a large contingent of ex military people that are homeless. You know, it's 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 balance, it's it's focus, it's it's so many different things that it can be, but then you have this umbrella of safety and constant money, or should I say regular money 
coming in that, that's been taken away. So some people struggle with it. I was lucky in the fact that a I'm a tight ass, um, and so I was I was prepared in some ways, and and b I was uh, you know I have a good a group of friends around me that are ex-military. That anytime I get a little bit too serious about that, they remind me how much of a dick I am. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's that's pretty awesome. From talking to different guys, people have different experiences transitioning. And and then also, like, I know guys who had their bell rung a couple times and they mm-hmm. have, like, some issues with, like, migraines and stuff like that, you know. The TBI stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, so I was just over in San Diego where they, they do that. I got back this morning. Um, I didn't do it. I've got a friend that is doing it. But it's a six-week program, and, and everyone that I've seen go through it have had nothing but good results. Oh, nice. So what is it, just like a program to like try and, and fix some issues? or I, I don't know. So I don't know if fix is the right word. I think it's work, work on them. It's like physical okay. work. It's like teaching you to do the right things for your body and your mind and your everything else. Um, just simple things that you wouldn't think about, you know, and um, it seems to be working with all the guys that I've spoken to that have gone through it. So nice. I'm, I'm so far, I'm a big fan of it, but we'll see, you know, everyone seems to think they've got TBIs that, that are close friends to mine, but I'm pretty sure it's just age in a lot of cases. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, you know, it was great talking to you. I appreciate you sharing some of your stories and experiences talking about the evidence piece and, and the way you handle situations. You know, I think those things are so important in life, you know. But again, you know, I just want to appreciate you. I, I appreciate you coming on. I want to thank you for doing this and thank you for your service as well. No, no, my pleasure, my friend. And thanks for having us on. And if there's anything else you need, you know, outside of this, please feel free to hit me up. Um, I'm generally, you know, I keep a, a good group of friends and it's always room for one more. <laughs>